verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This evening we'll finish, Lord willing, the qualifications for elder. In my studies of the book of First Timothy, I have uncovered the sad fact that some churches and commentators have come to believe that these letters are not the work of Paul the Apostle. In fact, they basically are able to discount the instructions given here by saying that this isn't really from God, this isn't really part of the gospel. From our perspective, we not only believe the word of God because God said it, but we also have the wisdom gained from experience and precedent that says ignoring God's word in the letters to Timothy is absolutely a gospel issue and will lead to spiritual decline in the church. Putting unqualified men into office will weaken and eventually destroy the church, perhaps not all at once, but perceptibly and sometimes quickly. Well, this has been a critical issue in the history of the Covenanter Church. The Covenanters, long ago, having just won their freedom after the killing times and the revolution settlement, were unwilling, for very good reasons, to join the National Church of Scotland. They were unwilling. Instead, they found themselves on the outside, without any ministers, like sheep without shepherds. They formed the United Societies and became known as the Society People. Well, it was not the most glamorous or exciting time in their history. For 50 years, they met in societies and prayed earnestly for God to provide ministers. How long would they wait for qualified men? And finally, the Lord did provide them with two ministers, but it took 50 years. Now, a minister is just one kind of elder. But the Covenanters were faced with the same question many congregations face, which is whether to ordain somebody, even though that person might not be qualified, or to wait and pray. Ruling elders may be raised up and trained for office, but what if a congregation doesn't have any men who are willing? What if nobody desires the noble task? And what if all the men are utterly complacent about the things of the Lord, maybe unwilling to study or unwilling to devote their time to this work. Well, pragmatism says, use what you've got. But the scripture insists that the people of God look for and test for the qualifications and make no exceptions or hasty moves until they've got them. So we come back this evening to the very last qualification on this list, one having to do with relationships. 
And the relationship under scrutiny here is that between an elder candidate and the outsiders. An elder must have a good reputation with outsiders. He must have a good reputation with outsiders. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. One of the most eye-catching features of this qualification is the presence of the enemy, the devil. Men of war, like soldiers, don't usually think of elders in the church as their fellows in arms, but this is one of the many verses that states that elders are in battle, not just sometimes, but daily and weekly, with an enemy that has far more strength. Indeed, physical wars are sometimes fought indirectly because of failures in the church's ministry. Another way of saying that is that the devil weakening the true church contributes to peoples and nations going to war with one another. The devil is the mastermind behind conflict. God's word says here that his primary target is the eldership of the church. Think of that. Scary as it might be to be targeted by artillery, the elders are targeted by a soul and church-destroying enemy who has powerful weapons at his disposal. Now, the apostle says this weapon is called the snare of the devil. Snares or traps are subtle, they're sneaky. An enemy, sorry, not an enemy, but a prey, an an animal doesn't usually know that the snare is there until it's caught in the snare. The modern battlefield snare is called the mine. You can't see it because it's just under the surface of the earth. Step on or drive over the buried mine and it kills or maims. A church that won't watch for the devil's snares is in trouble. And a church won't watch unless they're wary up front and trained in the word of God to detect them. And so once again, this scripture is really like a test for men who would come into the eldership. Just like Presbytery asks minister candidates about themselves and tries to be thorough in combing all the possibilities of their lives that are highlighted in scriptures like this, so a session looking for an elder has to work through each one until they're satisfied. They have to be able to detect the mines early that could blow up later. And this particular mind, mine to avoid in the eldership is disgrace. An elder will trigger this snare if he has a bad reputation among outsiders. Disgrace comes upon an elder when people believe the man to be immoral and therefore a hypocrite. Some ministers infamously start out with a fine reputation and then damage it so much through their public sinfulness that they bring disgrace on the church. The hurt that the church suffers is that people don't come. The unsaved take one look at that and say, well, if that's who's running the church, then I don't need it. You know what scandals the Roman Catholic clergy has fallen into for decades now, and sadly, many Protestants. Well, no one should be looking at the Reformed Church and say, those people are led by drunkards or adulterers or covetous, greedy people or liars or anything like that. Well, now, someone else might say, well, what about the apostles? 
They were always in jail and in prison. They were hunted and imprisoned and executed like criminals. They must have had terrible moral characters to be treated like that. But not so. The very early Christian preacher John Chrysostom pointed out that they were charged with being deceivers and impostors, but not charged about their moral character. Why? Because their character was unimpeachable. People couldn't find an issue with that, but they did take issue with the message they were preaching. They took issue with this message about a man who had died who wasn't just a man, but also the Son of God, who was the long-awaited Messiah. Many men die, but the apostles said that this man had died for sins, to pay pay their penalty and to be a substitute for sinners. And the apostles said, by faith in him, only can a person be forgiven by God. And not only that, but the apostles proclaimed that it was all stamped with God's approval and certification because he rose from the dead and wasn't dead anymore. And therefore, they said God would give eternal resurrection life to whoever believed on him. That was the message. Do you believe this message? Do you understand that God graciously loves sinners and he has provided the payment for their sins in a Redeemer? the Lord Jesus. And do you take Christ as your Redeemer, not working to be good enough to earn merit with God, but taking Him just by faith? This is God's promise to you, that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll live forever with God. God always performs His promises. Yet many people rejected this message. There were lots of people who were getting angry with the apostles because in their view the apostles were deceiving people and the people were leaving their idolatries if they were Gentiles or if they were Jews on the other hand. The apostles were upsetting the synagogues by teaching that Jesus of Nazareth was the one the scriptures were talking about. And so if a people, if people in the world complain that an elder is immoral, you see they're taking issue with the elder. But if they complain that he is preaching a fable or a falsehood, they're taking issue with the message. You see that distinction. And that is what God wants. He he doesn't want his elders to get in the way of the message. If people receive and believe the message, good. And of course, that's what God desires, is for people to believe and be saved. People should receive it. And they should receive it because it's true. But if people reject it, it should be clear that they are rejecting God's word, not that they are rejecting a hypocritical fornicator or a money lover or someone with no self-control. If every Christian were a shining example of Christian behavior, just think how the church would be like a light, a city on a hill, a light to the world. How brightly we would shine in this dark world and how many people would gather to the light. The importance of a good reputation is a reminder that the church is in the world and that the world is watching. Our enemy, the devil, is on the prowl. He's ready to target whoever he can, and that's all of us. But there's something more. He's targeting the eldership because they are the leaders. 
Well, I found it interesting in recent history to learn that the Ukrainian military succeeded in killing some high-ranking Russian military officers in the last year. It was part of their uh, strategy to shape the battlefield and to prepare it for their offensive, and it's a very old strategy. Strike the head, incapacitate the leaders, and the body can't fight. Similarly, the president of Russia now says he's afraid to travel out of the country to a summit meeting for fear of being arrested. If nations at war can locate and target their enemy's leadership, they'll gain this great advantage. Well, friends, the devil has no trouble locating us. We meet at this building. We, he knows where our houses are. He knows the members of our family. He can exploit our weaknesses. If he can damage the elders of your church, he'll cause the church to fold. And the ministry that we do have will come to an end. Believe me, the devil wants Kansas to be a place where nobody knows God and where Christ's kingdom is nowhere to be found and where ignorance and sin reign because it's then that people are fully captive to him and ready to do his will. He could destroy many lives that way. Therefore, the church has to examine men. Therefore, the church has to do sufficient research into this and every qualification. And if they do not, then the church, especially the ordaining elders, will partake in other men's sins. That's what Paul warns about later on in chapter 5. He says, be careful not to lay hands on a man hastily to ordain him to office and so become a part of his sins. Very well-intentioned elders can become guilty of soul murder through the sin of ordaining a man hastily. And you're saying, well, what's soul murder? Well, that's when a person is still biologically alive but stays in a lost condition and never comes to Christ. How does that happen? Well, the person that the elders ordain will have this authority to speak and will always be giving people impressions of what the church is and of what Christ is. And if he preaches against essential doctrine, or if he relaxes the law, or if he calls people to abandon holy living, he leads people away from heaven and into hell. And the men who ordain him are partly to blame. And if a man will teach the truth, yes, but if he'll teach it abstractly so that people are allowed to believe that holding to a doctrinal position is all that's required while living a holy life is not required, well, these are people who are not being saved and are remaining in their sins. That's soul murder. It's like having false teachers standing outside the narrow gate and saying, don't go in there. There's this nice broad way over here, this pleasant path. You can, you can go and keep orthodox doctrines if you want to, but don't die to self and don't die to sin. You don't want to take that narrow gate. And if an elder later reveals that he's proud, ignorant, a buffoon, or that he isn't considerate of the feelings of people, or is a hypocrite, he'll murder souls just by turning them away from the Lord Jesus. And if the way an elder talks about church people, or characterizes his own elders, or characterizes the godly and the righteous, only tends to lead people to think, oh, those Christians are only using religion as an excuse to sin, 
Or if he causes people to think the church is full of hypocrites, insinuating that his church is full of fanatics or people who are wayward or who don't really love Jesus, then he'll turn people away from the Lord. He'll be involved in murdering souls who would otherwise come to the Lord, except that his denigrating talk kept them away. So there goes his reputation and the church's reputation out the window, and the others who ordained him share in his sins. The question that goes before us is, does our church, the Covenanter church, still have the courage to insist on ordaining only the qualified? It was early in the 1800s, and therefore not very long ago, that the Parliament of Scotland decided that the National Church of Scotland should conform to the practice of patronage that was well known in the Anglican Church. Now up until that point, ever since Reformation days, the National Church was quite orthodox. It still had a very um, strong influence from covenanting times. But now some people wanted to introduce patronage. And what's patronage, you say? Well, patronage legally allows an important person, a lord or someone with a title of nobility and property, to appoint a minister for the local parish church. It would be as if the three biggest landowners in our county, Gove County, were given a legal right to choose the ministers for the churches around here. You can imagine the kinds of people they would choose. Well, several ministers were forced on congregations that did not want them. Now, someone might say, well, what what if they were well qualified? And maybe they were. What if they were well educated to be ministers and have shown their desire and suitability for ministry as a career? Uh, Thinking about a career, I'll never forget how when I was in seminary, somebody, actually I had graduated from seminary, I'll never forget how someone told me that I should start my own church, since after all I had my degree, and therefore I had the credential, and was considered by the world to be a professional, so why not have a startup church, like a startup business? Well, people think that today. They think if a man goes to seminary and finishes, he's got what it takes, like having a, a, a degree in finance, he should just apply for his job. Well, in Scotland, the church was deeply troubled by the question, what is a legitimate elder? Who really may and should be in this office? And after years of struggle and getting nowhere, 400 ministers and about 400 ruling elders left in what is called the Great Disruption to form the Free Church of Scotland. It was a move based on the truth that to be a God-honoring church and to hold to the truth of the gospel, not just anybody can be an elder, but only the qualified. Well, how often do we say that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? And yet we sometimes don't connect the dots that the church is the chief end of bringing glory to God upon the earth. As we pray, hallowed be thy name, we're praying for the glory of God to redound to God the Savior. But the next petition in the Lord's Prayer says how that shall be done. Thy kingdom come. When the church is beautiful, then God's name is a delight. 
Think of the psalm. From Zion beautiful, God shines forth gloriously. When the church has done right and is glorious, then God's name is glorious. Let's never give the world a reason to blaspheme by undermining God's glory with unqualified elders. Well, all of these warnings that I've spoken are appropriate for the church. This guidance from God is very obviously a fence to keep the church from straying off into error or sin. But I think it's appropriate to close remembering that this is a noble work, and it's a work that really is for the good of the world. Christ came to bless the world of sinners with salvation, and his church is his kingdom. The church is the place Christ is met and seen, and so we must always remember that Christ's blessing is going to be upon the elder who undertakes this office faithfully. Elders, remember that Christ called you. Ordination is not just a piece of paper. It isn't a mere formality. Christ himself is behind it. We who serve in the eldership remember that it is a work because the difficulties are many in this life with persecutions and privations and weariness, yet we remember that the work of Christ comes with the reward of Christ in the age to come. Nothing less than a heavenly reward is promised to faithful elders. Elders, let us also take courage from this, that there is no other way for the precious souls of people to be saved than from the word of this gospel entrusted to the church. Other than the word of reconciliation coming from you, no means of life saving is found anywhere. Whether you evangelize, whether you equip the saints, whether you preach or teach, whether you as elders are involved in the calling and equipping of missionaries, it's the elders, servants of Christ to the church, who are entrusted with the word on behalf of the whole church. And think what the Lord might say on the day you die and depart to heaven. Think how he might say, well done, good and faithful servant. And think what a great thing it would be if he then says, come and see the souls saved by your ministry. Come see the souls strengthened and built up by your diligent labors. That would bring gladness to your heart, would it not? Oh, to have even a single soul saved by your ministry, that would be such a joy. And to see in heaven, in heaven's reality, how the exhortations that we gave and the instructions and the discipline saved even a single soul from hell. What more noble and worthy task is there in the world? I had a strange dream this week in which I met the Lord Jesus. I don't hold to dreams and their importance. I don't think they're important usually, certainly not a word from God or anything like that in this age of the closed canon. So I'm not bringing this out for any other reason than that it's an illustration. I awoke from my dream with a very great desire to serve and to show love for him, and I remembered the word of God, how Christ asked Peter, do you love me? And when Peter had confirmed that, yes, he loved him, the Lord said, feed my lambs, feed my lambs. How do we elders show our love for the Lord? 
In this office, there are the duties of taking heed to the flock and feeding them and overseeing them, but especially feeding them. When Christ's little ones are looking for some spiritual food, when the unhappy people of this world, tired of the empty palliatives and the entertainments and the soul-destroying sin, long for life-giving food, we should feed them. We elders have the word. We have also the bread and the wine. In a starving world, we stand among the waving grain of God's blessing and offer the finest of wheat to all who will take it. Beloved saints of God, pray for your elders. The enemy targets them. People rail against them falsely. They grow weary. And we struggle against our own sin and our inconsistencies and our incompetencies. Pray for your elders. Pray for the ones you already have and pray for the ones that God might raise up in days to come. Pray for our sons and for your sons and your grandsons that God will show them early on what is good, that God will train them in sober-mindedness, will train them to be above reproach and wise, that they too may take up a noble work. Pray for elders. Let's pray.